And hello, everybody. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, daft or just ahead of his time? The curious case of James Tilly Matthews. Matthews was an 18th century British merchant who believed that a vast conspiracy was underway using the latest technologies, which for him meant gas chemistry and magnetism, to monitor and control the thoughts of England's leaders and push them into war. This plot, he said, was carried out by a group of shadowy revolutionaries using state-of-the-art machines hidden under the streets of London. James Tilly Matthews was branded a lunatic and thrown into that mother of all insane asylums, Royal Bethlehem Hospital, better known as Bedlam, and he is often cited as a classic example of paranoid schizophrenia. But there is a lot more to his tale. In fact, it is so full of drama and surprising twists and turns that it could easily be a very entertaining movie script. And to dismiss James Tilly Matthews as merely one more delusional nutter would be to miss one of the most important elements of his story. The way in which this guy anticipated the times we now live in. I mean, think how modern that sounds. Mind-influencing technology, sinister cabals, pulling unseen levers and controlling our affairs. That is pretty much de rigueur these days. And not just in fiction and the imaginations of clinical schizophrenics. The worrisome idea that we are increasingly subject to mass persuasion, subliminal propaganda, surveillance, and clandestine political machinations, all mediated by high-tech, seems to be the modern condition. So I ask again, was James Tilly Matthews really cuckoo, or was he a canary? You know, as in canary in the coal mine. Now, I should confide that these thoughts and questions are not exactly my own. They were implanted in my brain by means of an insidious mind-altering device known as a book, specifically a book called A Visionary Madness, The Case of James Tilly Matthews and the Influencing Machine. It's by the British writer and historian Mike Jay. And in the hour to come, we're going to be hearing from Mike Jay about the remarkable life of James Tilly Matthews and just how much his dark visions prefigured our own contemporary experience of politics, paranoia, technology, and madness. Stay tuned. Micah, I thought I'd start this interview with a piece of tape I collected some years back when I was interviewing people on the street about some events and got an answer I never expected. It went on for quite a long time, but here is just an excerpt. Uh, the huge containment barrels have um, it's called gold carbon fueled gases of fiber uh, nitrogen gases. And what they do is, is that they plug into atomic fuel generators, and those generators then flood uh, gases into cable networking celeron fields. They're designed as a last defense system. But Los Alamos got a little greedy and wanted to firejack the entire system into the cable celeron field phone cable field networking lines. In doing so, the intent was to control and to manipulate electoral and election events by, um, have you ever seen a light recently to, I guess the best thing to do, wait for the evening time. And if you see a gas light of nitrogen gas that seems to strike at you or any part of your body, 
then you're actually being optically neural gassed with a neural um, nitrogen carbon gas from Los Alamos. Uh, Mike, your response to that? Wow, it's fantastic to hear it because it rhymes so directly with James Tilly Matthews' experiences. I guess if you'd uh, caught him on uh, Piccadilly Circus in London around 200 years ago, he would be um, explaining along similar lines that there was this mesmeric kind of machine powered by um, gases called the heirloom that was uh, operating invisibly and controlling the minds of um, politicians. So, uh, you know, it's an extraordinarily close parallel to that. Yeah, I think we can say that my more contemporary uh, example here is part of a long tradition, at least a 200-year tradition. Um, James Tilly Matthews is the first recorded instance of it, though, uh, someone invoking a kind of machine that has come to be called an influencing machine. That's right. That he said was controlling people's thoughts and actions. Yes, including his own, of course. For political purposes. And yes, his account of what was happening to him was entirely political. It was that he had been a double agent in the French Revolution, trying to make peace between the British and French governments and to stop them from going to war. And in the course of this, he'd stumbled onto this conspiracy uh, run by these um, sort of diehard French revolutionaries who were using this machine to control the minds of the political leaders in Britain and in France and to make them go to war with each other for their own ends. And that Matthews, having stumbled onto this, was then um, targeted and controlled by the machine. Now, I'm tempted to say what an imagination this guy had, mm -hmm. but some of what you just said turns out to be the truth, not the part about the heirloom, so far as we know. <laughs> and I should say, by the way, that it is not the word H-E-I-R-L-O-O-M. It is not a family hand-me-down or keepsake. It is not that word. It is um, heirloom, A-I-R, loom. It kind of weaves together these different, modulates these different um, gases to produce its effect. Right. But the part that turns out to be true is his involvement in intrigue and, uh, you know, back-channel diplomacy between England and France for a number of years, trying to prevent the outbreak of war. That's right. And that was how I came to write a book about him, because um, his case is extraordinarily well documented in psychiatric terms. The apothecary at uh, Bethlehem Hospital, John Haslam, uh, wrote an entire book-length account of his um, delusional beliefs because they were so extraordinary. The contents of his mind are better preserved than that of any comparable person in history before him. But nowhere in these debates did anybody consider that part of his story might have been true. It was always this idea that he'd been a a double agent in the French Revolution and had, um, you know, had meetings with the Prime Minister. All this is regarded as part of his, you know, delusional belief system. And in fact, it was true. And it was really um, tracking down that part of the story and comparing it to his writings from, from Bedlam that really kind of um, brought the story to life for me. Uh, and, and this, of course, is the subject of your book that is coming out, I guess, um, in January of 2014 in the That's United right. States in a new edition uh, under the title A Visionary Madness, the case of James Tilly Matthews and the Influencing Machine, uh, and it's North Atlantic Press, right? That's right. So you learned that James Tilly Matthews had, in fact, had this incredible adventure leading up to his incarceration uh, in Bedlam, the notorious insane asylum in London. That's right. The 
account of his his heirloom delusions as produced by um, the apothecary at Bethlehem um, that was called Illustrations of Madness, and that's kind of available in a reprint edition, and it's a fascinating document. And uh, when I first looked at it, I thought, wow, this is amazing stuff and completely crazy. I can't understand a word of this. Uh, I then <laughs> found out that it was possible to um, track his real story a little bit, not least because um, there are... Uh, Enormous numbers of um, letters by him in the um, archives of the uh, French Foreign Office because he was held under house arrest and later in prison for three years during the terror in the French Revolution. And, of course, um, the Jacobins were amazing bureaucrats. They kept everything, so it was possible to go to Paris and read all this stuff. Uh, once I'd read it, I went back to uh, the um, illustrations of madness, and I suddenly realized this isn't just a kind of crazy stream of consciousness he's actually trying to explain what actually happened to him in the clearest way that he possibly can and so that kind of um performed the trick i guess of sort of turning um his uh, what looked like florid madness into um something that had a reason and a real story behind it well the book that in part made him famous as you say by john haslam who was i guess what we would call the pharmacist there at bedlam yes uh, that's what, right. what, what did he dispense he was responsible for the um, physical health of everybody who was locked up um, at Bethlehem Hospital at Bedlam, which was about 300 people at that time. So that's a population of adults, you know, some of whom would probably have had, you know, dementia. You know, others um, probably would be diagnosed with different illnesses, mental illnesses today. Um, you know, some with learning difficulties, others probably with, you know, nothing particularly wrong with them, but all kind of sitting around for 24 hours a day. So uh, he was just a, more of looked after their physical health and their mental health. He didn't have a lot um, that he could offer. Um, opium was probably the most effective medication. Uh, and there was a regime um, that had been in place since medieval times, which really went back to the old humoral theories of medicine that people had too much blood or too much bile or whatever. So uh, um, patients were bled you know, and given purgatives to vomit and so on to rebalance the fluids. Um, it doesn't have a lot of health benefits for the patients, but it's extremely useful for people trying to look after them because these are mostly unpleasant things that you can withhold for patients who are well-behaved. And, you know, you see that the word treatment kind of has um, two meanings for us still. You know, they get better or worse treatment depending on how they behaved. So uh, Dr. Haslam did not have a lot at his disposal. <laughs> Yeah, mostly purging and bleeding. Um, but he did write this book about James Tilly Matthews, his prize patient. You gave the short title, short version of the title. I want to give the entire title because it's so amazing. Uh, Illustrations of Madness, Exhibiting a Singular Case of Insanity and a No Less Remarkable Difference in Medical Opinions, Developing the Nature of an Assailment and the Manner of Working Events, with a description of tortures experienced by bomb bursting, lobster cracking, and lengthening of the brain, embellished with a curious plate. Isn't that great? That's Haslam, I think, kind of trying to reach out for a crossover audience. Um, he'd previously um, written a sort of, um, you know, books which were more for, you know, the very small world than of what were called mad doctors, um, people who dealt with um, insanity. Um, he'd written more um, technical books before. He was involved in a huge feud over James Tilly Matthews because, as his subtitle suggests, there were other doctors who'd interviewed Matthews at length 
and found him perfectly sane because the thing about Matthews is when he wasn't talking about the heirloom and all its rays and beams and how they were assailing him and lengthening his brain, he was extremely um, articulate uh, and intelligent and also very gentle, uh, very charismatic, obviously, you know, a lovely man. So um, Haslam was reaching out beyond the medical profession and what he was trying to say with this is um, just because these people have the letters MD after their name, their doctors, which of course... Haslam didn't have and wasn't and had a huge chip on his shoulder about. Just because of that doesn't mean that they know more than someone like me who works with these people all the time. So he's trying to write something for uh, popular consumption um, that's playing up the sort of bizarre world of James Tilly Matthews, but trying to use that to, uh, you know, make his point and make his case for, a, you know, a recognition um, of the kind of specialism that he's just starting to practice. So, so I'd like to explain uh, that that incredibly long-winded title is referring to James Tilly Matthews's description of what the heirloom is doing to him, this demonic right. device that is um, mixing various noxious gases mm-hmm. that are held in barrels. By the way, this thing is under the streets of London, operated by a nefarious crew, and it is projecting these gases by means of magnetism, uh, mesmerism, you know, some newfangled concepts of the era, uh, right into the the brain and body of James Tilly Matthews and other people to control what they're doing, and some of the um, the workings of this uh, machine include uh, the effects called bomb bursting, lobster cracking, and lengthening of the brain. That's right. Some of the um, effects which uh, Matthews calls these event workings, I guess we'd kind of maybe call them programs or settings that the heirloom um, could achieve. Some of these are um, physical effects like lobster cracking, which is a kind of, you know, tightening the magnetic currents around the chest and squeezing the person to death. And there are other um, effects that it can accomplish, like um, uh, knee nailing and fiber ripping, which are fairly self-explanatory. But there are other ones that are mental effects, like um, lengthening the brain. Uh, This is an effect rather like um, one of those funhouse mirrors. If you've maybe got yourself a hearing um, people about to listen to um, your story about the heirloom and what it's doing uh, and they're sitting down kind of patiently waiting for you to listen you start to talk about it then the heirloom takes control of you and if it's set to lengthening the brain what it will do is make your ideas sound foolish and ridiculous so that even you don't believe them so in the process of talking you come across as if well as if you're mad now a lot of people have said retrospectively that James Tilly Matthews was a classic paranoid schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. These are the, the hallmarks of paranoid schizophrenia, that you think your thoughts are not your own, uh, that there are voices and other effects going on that you can't control in your head, and that they are, in fact, being uh, managed by somebody else at a distance using some kind of apparatus, which was named an influencing machine some years later, in the early uh, 20th century, by a disciple of Freud's, Victor Tosk, a psychoanalyst who studied these kinds of patients and said, ah, a lot of them talk about machines that influence them. Yes, that's right. Um, I think uh, it seems very likely that uh, Matthews would be diagnosed today as a paranoid schizophrenic. But that kind of maybe tells us more about uh, ourselves than about his condition, because Paranoid schizophrenia as a diagnosis didn't really exist until 100 years later. Effectively, it groups together a whole bunch of different symptoms that people haven't put in one category before and called it a syndrome and named it paranoid schizophrenia. 
that's fine as a clinical description, but I'm not sure it takes us much further into Matthews's private world or his experience. I think for that we have to tune in a little more, more closely to his own life and times. Well, to make his very long story short, he was a tea broker, uh, right? A, a guy who That's traded right. in tea. Uh, he was Welsh originally. He was part of a kind of progressive line of thinking of the era, advocating for international peace and um, representative government. And he got involved in this back and forth across the English Channel after the French Revolution had begun, when England was quite frightened that the revolution might spread. They were particularly frightened when uh, Louis XVI lost his head. <laughs> and, and the world was really in disarray. Rumblings of war were, were happening. Yeah. And, and Matthews and some cohorts seemingly took it upon themselves to try to negotiate some kind of deal that would head off war between France and England, trying to find people within each government who might be willing to um, ratchet down you know, the, the escalation that was going on. That's right. I mean, Matthews was not wrong. You know, he feared that if um, Britain and France went to war, it would be a disaster. And it was, as we know. They fought each other to a stalemate that cost over a million lives. Sort of a whole generation was lost. And he could kind of see this coming. And in, in a way, his experience is a kind of version writ large of the experience that a lot of people had of that generation who'd grown up um, with a lot of hopes for a progressive politics, representative democracy, and... Um, you know, the end of slavery and, and, and you know, and, and all these popular causes. Um, and had then been caught out when um, Britain swung rapidly to the, to the right and all those kind of beliefs became suspicious and seemed, um, you know, treasonable and subversive. So Matthews made a number of trips, uh, increasingly desperate attempts to, to head off war. But if not crazy, he seems to have been an eccentric character, right? I mean, someone who had the idea that he could save the world, with some grand plans, he proposed amazingly ambitious schemes to the French. And I can just see these French bureaucrats saying, oh, no, here he comes again. Yeah, it, all these peace proposals, I mean, they're all well documented. and They are eccentric, but, um, you know, it's eccentric times. It was very, I mean, on the British side, it was very clear who the government was. But on the French side, you know, this was all around the time of the execution of the king. You had a succession of revolutionary governments. It was never quite clear, you know, who had the power to negotiate with foreign countries. And uh, the man who Matthews was traveling with, David Williams, was a kind of a guru to, uh, you know, some major figures in the um, uh, French revolutionary government at that time. So to start off with, he had very good connections with the French government. And he also, you know, was able to meet with William Pitt, the British prime minister, so, um, you know, in a way, he seems to have been very plausible, very charismatic, and um, to have, uh, you know, seized what was at best a kind of half chance for, for, for peace and, uh, you know, pushed it really quite a long way. So um, there's a craziness about um, his adventures, but it's partly the craziness of the time. Mm. Yeah, we should say the French Revolution, of course, was actually a series of revolutions and purges, very bloody, <laughs> in which, you know, periodically... One group would be thrown out uh, and guillotined, and another group would take power. Uh, and there was this attempt to purify the revolution over and over again. It was kind of madness Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, Matthews' madness is the war between France and Britain writ large, I think. Mm, mm. 
At some point, though, the French get tired of him or worried that maybe he's more than just a would-be diplomat. Maybe he's a spy, and they jail him. The people who he was originally dealing with, uh, you know, get purged and guillotined, so he immediately becomes suspicious. So, yeah, so he ends up just, I think, you know, right through that period in the heart of the terror when people are just being woken up uh, at dawn with a knock on the door and dragged off and guillotined. You know, he's, I guess, expecting that every morning. Uh, and he's under house arrest and then uh, disappears into the kind of revolutionary gulag. And emerges three years later, returns to England, and proceeds to get back into his political work. and his um, political drama. Maybe. His political yeah. drama, yes. And uh, he actually uh, goes to the House of Commons and accuses... Who, who is it he accuses of, of treason on the floor of the House of Commons? He accuses... Um, Lord Liverpool, who was oh, um, right, yes. you know, a senior member of Pitt's <laughs> cabinet, who he dealt with and had meetings with um, during the uh, period of his uh, negotiations with the French government three years before. And when he comes back, he starts writing to Lord Liverpool and saying, you know, my lord, I'm, you know, I'm back. I, you know, I remember our meetings and I remember that we discussed the possibility of the peace plan and so forth. But um, now for the British government, um, war with France has become the great patriotic cause. Nobody wants to be reminded that there were peace negotiations going on. So Liverpool uh, ignores his letters uh, and keeps on ignoring him until uh, Matthews turns up in person in the House of Commons and shouts treason at him from the public gallery. And that is the point at which he's thrown into Bedlam and uh, classified as an insane person and kept there for much of the remainder of his life under the care of Mr. Haslam, who writes the book about him and sort of makes him famous. That's right. And uh, in fact, you know, after he's been in prison for some considerable time, um, you know, his, his family are never convinced that he's mad. His family don't understand why he's there, and they try everything they can to get him out um, and uh, eventually um, elicit a letter from the government 12 years later to the governors of Bethlehem saying, uh, we trust that you will keep James Tilly Matthews, a lunatic um, of yours, under lock and key, as he's a dangerous um, to the public. So, um, in that sense, Matthews' conspiracy is real. He's being kept locked up for political reasons. Well, up until this point, I think we can safely say that James Tilly Matthews is perhaps eccentric. He's grandiose. He has a remarkable sense of self-importance, thinking that he can save the world. He does propose some things that seem over the top. He is persistent, obsessive. He's not very practical. <laughs> and he's certainly naive. I mean, extremely naive about the ways the world works. But you might argue, am I right, that he wasn't crazy. He wasn't really crazy. Certainly there's no heirloom. There's none of this kind of, you know, grand sort of florid delusional world of influencing machines and mysterious people patrolling the streets with mesmeric fluid, dosing people, and uh, Matthews believing he had a magnet implanted in his brain. You know, none of that um, appears until he's been locked up in Bedlam for some considerable time. In his letters to Lord Liverpool, they start off kind of reasonable, and um, they then get kind of crazier and crazier uh, in ways that I think all our letters do. If you're writing to somebody trying to get their attention and they're ignoring you, you know, <laughs> things ramp up. But you start to uh, see during the course of those letters, his world is kind of shrinking down. It sort of becomes all about him and he places himself, however implausibly, right in the center of the action of the French Revolution. 
Well, you know, the story continues. Uh, he's made famous to some extent not only by his political activities but by Haslam's book about him, which describes in detail this influencing machine, this heirloom that he says is controlling his thoughts and other people's thoughts. In fact, many heirlooms are at work, according to Matthews, working on politicians and members of the public, mm-hmm. uh, all driven by these French revolutionaries who want war and have gotten it. He's stuck in Bedlam for a long time, but eventually he is released because of ill health to another facility. Is that right? He's never, ever freed again. Um but he's allowed to leave the hospital and live instead in a private uh, madhouse, a private asylum, which is a much more pleasant environment. Where he's regarded as a model patient, uh, very helpful, in fact. He, he does all the books and the accounting yeah. and uh, writes all the letters and does loads of gardening, which he's always loved to do, even when he was in the, the old, um, old bedlam building, a sort of tumble-down building in the middle of the city. He found a space where he could... Uh, get a little vegetable plot going. And you're absolutely right. You know, he's, all he's ever wanted to be is helpful. Uh, you know, that's the only reason he got into this in the first place, was he was trying to resolve conflicts. And there's a lot of testimony from the time that he was in Bedlam saying he was always the peacemaker and, uh, you know, trying to sort out problems with other inmates. And, and, and while in Bedlam, by the way, he's also done some other extraordinary things. He published a book about architecture. He participated in a competition to propose a new design for uh, Bethlehem Royal Hospital, i.e. Bedlam, um, w- where he came up with some really legitimately excellent designs, true? Yes. His drawing that he does of the heirloom, which is reproduced in Haslam's book, is very, very beautiful, very, very accomplished. He obviously had a, a very, very good hand and a very good, sort of, very, very good eye, very good sense of design. So um, when he gets a little bit of encouragement, um, then he starts, doing architectural planning and um, just at this point the um, the building of Bethlehem that he's in is falling down and they're trying to design a new one no one can quite figure out what it should look like so they start a public competition and Matthews enters and he produces these beautiful um, diagrams and sort of drawings and plans of what he thinks an asylum should look like he includes lots and lots of um, detail about what daily life is like in an asylum and how it could be made better for staff and inmates alike. And it's fascinating when he starts to do this, when he starts to be useful, you can see the um, there's a delusional world of the heirloom starts to lose its grip. Uh, I mean, that's really something that emerges when he's kind of pretty much locked up in solitary confinement in Bedlam. As soon as he's kind of out in the world doing other things, you know, as soon as he can be useful and helpful, it starts to patch him back into, you know, to everybody else's reality. And then there's the final chapter of the story, which is a, a kind of reform movement that, that happens in the treatment of the mentally ill in uh, Britain. People advocating for more humane treatment who viewed places like Bedlam as cruel. And James Tilly Matthews becomes a cause celebre in a way. Um, this is after he's died, right? Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, even while he's there, you know, he's locked up in Bedlam at a very interesting time. You know, he arrives at this regime, which is still pretty much medieval, you know, bleeding and purging and uh, nothing in the way of therapy. And uh, just while he's locked up, then ideas start to change. Um, You start to get the first of the sort of humane um, intentions, 19th century asylums. Um, The Quakers, the Society of Friends, um, have a famous one up in York then people start thinking about what it might be like to have uh, a madhouse 
uh, that wasn't just simply about locking people up like animals, but that might be about um, treating them and um, occupational therapies and even possibly curing them. And eventually, the tables are turned. People have come forward and said, you know, James Tilly Matthews never was insane. He may have had some odd ideas, but that he never was insane and that this fellow Haslam, the pharmacist, <laughs> the guy in charge of patients' health, was keeping him illegally. Yes, uh, he does become a cause celebre because there's a parliamentary uh, investigation into uh, Bethlehem after his death, and uh, a lot of his writings are um, passed across to them, and um, they form the basis for the uh, cross-examination of John Haslam, who is forced to admit that he did um, keep uh, Matthews chained up in ways that uh, you know he wasn't supposed to. Um, Haslam was, uh, in theory, was a, a very um, sort of liberal and progressive physician, um, but he's exposed by Matthews as having, um, you know, epitomized the worst of this old and discredited regime. So, um, rather extraordinarily, this man has gone from a humble uh, tea merchant or tea broker to a secret agent to uh, a famous lunatic to an example of how the system was mislabeling people as lunatics and mistreating them and confining them arbitrarily, and sort of a hero in the end. Um, yeah, and he's become an accomplished architectural draftsman in the process, all, all kinds of other things. It's a really an extraordinary story. I mean, he must have been an extraordinary man. I want to get back to the one thing that is remembered most about him, uh, the heirloom, mm. th this machine that he imagined was controlling his thoughts and other people's thoughts and actions in Britain and France at the time. First of all, he gave a very detailed description of it, and he did do a drawing. That is the curious plate that John Haslam <laughs> refers to in the long-winded subtitle of his book, where he says, embellished with a curious plate. So Matthews had this very detailed idea of how it worked. It involved a lot of cutting-edge science. These things were really new at the time, you know, the science of gases, of pneumatics, and what was called mesmerism. That's right. Around this time, I guess, there's an area of cutting-edge science which is also politically progressive. You know, it's an area that includes um, gas chemistry. Um, you know, this is, we're coming out of the time when people figured that thought that air was just this kind of invisible substance. People are starting to realize, in fact, there are all these different substances in air, and they can be separated out, and they have different properties. If some of them are corrosive, others like oxygen are kind of even better than air. And together with this, you've also got ideas of electricity at the beginning of the battery, voltaic piles, and so on. And, um, you know, these are ideas that are typically espoused by um, scientists who are politically progressive, you know, this is unlocking the secrets of nature, and, you know, this is going to sweep away all our current um, institutions, and these things are going to create a new society, you know, and they were not wrong. And then there's also this idea of mesmerism or animal magnetism, which at the time seems like another science of this kind. You know, this is something that um, enables us to uh, play with um, matter itself on a very kind of um, fundamental level. And you've had Franz Anton Mesmer in Paris giving amazing public demonstrations of mesmerism where he can take patients and make them kind of writhe around and convulse and do extraordinary things. <laughs> so nobody doubts that this um, power exists. And it's in this kind of complex of cutting-edge ideas that Matthews finds an explanation for what's happening to him.
you know, a hundred years later, when Victor Tosk first labeled this notion as an influencing machine, he was seeing a lot of patients doing similar things with the science of their day, right? Yes, he was. What's extraordinary about Matthews is that, um, you know, um, this is kind of before what we think of as the Industrial Revolution. But as that builds, you start to get uh, more and more um, people talking about, you know, having these kinds of delusions, belief that, you know, telegraphs and telephones are sending them messages and that um, electric fields and dynamos are influencing them. And by the time Victor Tausk comes along, this is really um, sort of during the First World War, uh, where he's in Belgrade, which is where he sees a whole array of influencing machines. He's finding a lot of patients who believe that their minds are being controlled by electrical devices, um, you know, uh, often from the next room or under their bed or somewhere where they can't see, acting on them from a distance. And we're also starting to get, um, you know, he says, a magic lantern or cinematograph. You know, he's just got, got the beginning of cinema and people are starting to get the idea that these things that they're experiencing, which nobody else is experiencing apart from them, must be in some way projections, kind of some cinematic trick. You have said that you see the influencing machine as a, quote, myth of the modern age. Yes, that, that is the way I see it. And in a sense, I'm thinking of the classical myths like, um, say, Ovid's Metamorphoses or something. Uh, you know, these are stories that tell us about, you know, the difference between... Um, animals and gods and humans. These are stories of, um, you know, gods coupling with animals and humans and producing sort of origin stories. So in a way, you can see those classical myths as um, people trying to figure out, you know, who are we? You know, what are human beings? Um, you know, we're not gods, we're not animals, you know, we're, we're, we're something else. In a way, these kind of stories um, address the reality that we have today, where we're becoming increasingly dependent on technology and our reality is becoming increasingly mediated by technology. We kind of have this appetite now for stories about what if there was a machine that uh, nobody knew about that was secretly uh, controlling our minds? What would that um, look like? How would it play out? And, uh, you know, what would we do if we figured out the truth and nobody else believed us? At what point did tinfoil come into the picture as a way of protecting oneself against these malign influences? The earliest example that uh, I've found is someone called uh, Jacob Moore, who um, almost exactly 100 years after um, Matthews was locked up in an asylum in Germany. And um, he drew some pictures which were collected by a man called Hans Prinzhorn, um, who was a psychiatrist who was the first person to really collect sort of art from asylum patients. And Jacob Moore's pictures are a wonderful, I mean, bridge between sort of Matthews's world of the heirloom and the kind of contemporary world of the tinfoil hat, if you like. Um, there are these pictures of, uh, there's him kind of lying on a bed and there's somebody else standing in the next room holding a battery and you see all these kind of lines of force and influence radiating out of the battery and into his head and you can see he's being controlled by them. And um, when Moore was drawing these um, pictures, he would wear a tinfoil vest to stop these radiations that he was drawing from uh, assailing and attacking him while he was, uh, while he was drawing them. So I guess um, the tinfoil hat has just maybe just had its centenary. <laughs> and it's still going strong among people who think that, that various rays and invisible forces are affecting their minds. It's very hard to say, you know, I mean, these are all these ideas, I think, occupy a 
disputed territory where we don't know quite what's going on and our assumptions can be changed very fast. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of obviously the obvious contemporary news story is the NSA prism story. They used to be kind of paranoid and crazy to think that the government were eavesdropping on us and sort of spying on and collecting all our emails and phone messages. Uh, now it doesn't look so crazy. Well, yeah, technology has, in a sense, caught up with our darkest fears. And not saying that people can control our minds just yet, but there's this kind of current that runs through contemporary thought that the Internet, that um, various kinds of communication technology are influencing our actions in ways we have less and less control over, right? That advertisers and companies are using our information and various algorithms to steer us this way or that way, to present us with this information or that information, to sell us this or that merchandise. And our government, meanwhile, is um, surveilling us, you know, and getting all of our secrets, and that we are less and less in control. So it does sound like we have entered a James Tilly Matthews universe in some way. Yes. I mean, I think um, Victor Tausk's explanation of what was going on was basically, well, he was kind of a Freudian, even if a, a bit of a renegade one, so it kind of, for him, it all went back to childhood. Um, his idea was that there's a stage of childhood development where, you know, to begin with, when we're babies, the whole world is about us. There is no separation between our interior world and, you know, the exterior world. Gradually, we discover that separation. We discover that some of this stuff is going on inside our head and is under our own control, and other things are happening out there in a world uh, that's independent of us, where we can't control them. And he, um, uh, you know, this is the, the diagnosis of schizophrenia was quite new at uh, the point that he was writing, and that was his um, framework for what was basically going on. These are people who can't quite tell what's happening in their own heads and what's happening in the outside world. But that, in a way, now is all of us, right? I mean, we're, um, you know, when we're interacting with people on this, you know, when we're kind of Skyping or um, texting or kind of um, interacting with our smartphones or our sort of computers or watching stuff that's kind of real, but it's not, you know, it's happening somewhere else. You know, we're all in this liminal zone where it's kind of half happening in our heads. We're not really experiencing it. We're experiencing a representation of it, but we can't really tell whether that representation is real or, you know, it could all be, um, it, it could all be a simulation, right? Right. And, uh, of course, you know, this is a staple of our science fiction, but it's also a case, I think, that, that paranoia has become a somewhat general state. This is not new, Richard Hofstadter, back in 1964, wrote a famous essay called The Paranoid Style in American Politics, uh, talking about a, a history of, you know, deep suspicions about malign forces who were really at the helm of our, uh, of our governance that we didn't really know about. And, and uh, this, of course, is ever more popular these days. I think that starts, really, at almost exactly the same time as James Tilly Matthews in the wake of the... French Revolution is when you get this idea that uh, it was all a conspiracy of the Illuminati who were this kind of secret subversive sect hidden within Freemasonry. Um, because it was very hard for people to understand the French Revolution. You couldn't really say, oh, it was Robespierre who did it, or it was Danton who did it, or any of the obvious protagonists, because they were all guillotined. So you got start to get the idea that there must be this kind of secret organization behind the scenes, you know, the puppet masters pulling the strings. Yeah, I, I guess the old regimes, monarchy, they implied that the world had a certain kind of order. You know, it may have not been good for most people, but it was stable. 
But when yeah. you have, you know, governments utterly destabilized, when you have something that was supposed to be descended from God, that is the idea of royalty as a, a kind of divine lineage, when you have that upset and overturned, mm-hmm. I, I imagine your, your foundations are really shaken. Yeah, and I think also at that time you also get new possibilities. I mean, if you're just a subject of a divinely appointed monarch, you know, you know your place in the world. Once you're um, part of a republic or a nation state, um, your individuality becomes much more complex. You know, the limits of your own agency are not so clear. You kind of make your own life. You make your own destiny. And that's perceived as a freedom for, for people for whom that process is successful, who become kind of more than they could ever have been before. But by the same token, there are always people for whom, you know, that new idea of individuality, those new responsibilities, those new ideas of agency are troubling and problematic and raise dilemmas that they can't solve. You know, so um, in a way, this kind of paranoid style is... Um, Maybe we could see it as the flip side of, um, you know, our sort of modern um, individual and democratic culture. So your book, you know, it certainly implies that James Tilly Matthews, despite that period in which he seems to have been very delusional about the heirloom, was really not so much a case of some organic brain disease as he was symptomatic of cultural forces that were affecting a lot of people and continue to affect a lot of people. And the fact that we have seen many more people, you know, diagnosed as schizophrenic, whose schizophrenia includes political and scientific ideas, you know, like influencing mm-hmm. machines and, and vast political conspiracies, you know, may be socio-historical. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there is a, clearly a sort of biological factor here, but I think we're talking about uh, these sort of episodes and these conditions um, it seems to me that they must be kind of multifactorial. Um, I remember a, a psychiatrist once giving me this helpful metaphor of uh, um, imagine a bath with um, a whole series of faucets, you know, which can be turned on. Uh, and one of these faucets is maybe kind of um, genetic or hereditary, and another one is, you know, it, you know maybe something um, sort of physical to do with neurochemistry, and another one is probably stress. And, uh, you, know, there, you know, there are various of these faucets, and the more of them that are turned on, the more likely the bath is to overflow. So I guess I'd propose a model, something like that. Now, there are people, though, who have suggested that schizophrenia is a modern disease. That's right. And I think it's hard to find schizophrenia in history beyond the point where the diagnosis of schizophrenia was introduced. You know, I think that's why it makes sense for it to talk about it as a diagnosis. And that's a movement certainly here in Britain that's been been led by patients. And a lot of uh, doctors and psychiatrists are now following suit, um, talking about it as a diagnosis rather than saying it is a disease. Because, you know, we don't have the answer to some very basic questions. You know, what causes it, uh, you know, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's um, you know, and as soon as you start looking back in history, um, before the modern era, and I think this is the thing about James Tilly Matthews, is he gives us a sort of, you know, a wonderfully kind of uh, extraordinarily vivid kind of um, ex- modern expression of this for the first time. But when you look back before that time in Western culture, or still in kind of other cultures around the world, you have, you know, the dominant framework for understanding these kind of things that happen to some people is, you know, possession by spirits or demonic possession or a kind of... Uh, divine encounter of some sort. 
So it's very hard to go and look back at all those cases and see which ones we might call schizophrenia these days or which ones, you know, might be seen as an expression of cultural roles that, you know, no longer exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have any idea yourself what the experience of being a schizophrenic, so-called, is like? Uh, It's a really good question. I have, uh, I think, you know, all the um, understanding I have, I have to thank uh, friends of mine um, who have suffered from this condition including ones who were very close friends before this happened, so uh, who I can uh, kind of talk about in quite a lot of detail. But I've had, um, I mean, I've, I've certainly felt, uh, I mean, a couple of times I've taken, for example, larium, the anti-malarial, um, you know, medication, and found, uh, you know, extraordinarily sort of disruptive effects on my sort of brain chemistry, you know, bizarre dreams, mood swings, all that kind of thing. I mean, I think that gives us a sense of how easily, you know, these kind of mental disturbances can be produced physically. And it kind of gives you a sense of, uh, you know, what it would be like to live with that, not knowing where it had come from and not knowing if or whether it was ever going to end. Am I right in thinking that, you know, one of the, the real signature manifestations of schizophrenia is this feeling that your mind is not completely your own, that thoughts or voices or impulses are arising and they're not coming from your own volition they're not yours they yeah. must be coming from outside that's right and it's a so it's a i mean it's been called a, a disease of the will you know it seems as if um most of us kind of take for granted an idea of an identity you know which is pretty consistent that we're comfortable with that we believe in that we impose on our own actions and our own thoughts you know this is us doing it imagine what it's like to lose that I think increasingly these days, those of us who follow neuroscience and cognitive science are coming to realize that our minds are not our own in many senses, if by our own we mean under conscious control. Mm -hmm. Um, Freud, of course, introduced this idea of the subconscious, but the newer idea of the unconscious is that a good deal of thinking and decision-making and so on, actions even, are initiated in areas that we aren't even aware of. But the idea that we are in control seems to be one we need. And if that ever uh, leaves us, if perhaps a faculty that actually convinces us we are one self, we are the boss, however illusory that might be, if that faculty ever disappears, maybe we become like a schizophrenic. I think that's right. And as you say, you know, um, consciousness research and um, neurology are telling us more and more clearly that um, this unified kind of I, you know, that we carried around in our heads, our sort of subjectivity, is illusory. But it's kind of an illusion that we need to, um, you know, to operate and to act um, socially, you know, because everybody does this. And that's the basis of our culture, of our society. That's the basis on which we all interact. There was a British um, psychoanalyst uh, who once, when asked to define madness, said, uh, madness is when you can't find anyone else who can stand you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which kind of sounds flippant, but in a way, that is what we call madness or mental illness. Is um, It's something we reach for in cases where people just can't connect with anybody else anymore. Nobody can cope with them. You know, their friends and their family and their loved ones can't cope with them anymore. So it's kind of an instrumental definition. It's basically saying, you know, this is somebody who doesn't sort of, you know, who isn't patched into the social net anymore. And we need to kind of take them off somewhere else to have sort of special care. And that's why I think it's interesting in James Tilly Matthews' case that, uh, you know, he seems to be less 
mad, if you like, when he's becoming more helpful and more useful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, it's a really a function of whether, you know, we're patched into that social network or not. Yeah, and you, you can imagine people who have various forms of dysfunction, but who have such great skills in some areas that it's overlooked. Well, we're often told, aren't we, that, uh, you know, politicians and business leaders and all these successful people are psychopaths, you know, who <laughs> right, lack um, right. empathy. And, um, <laughs> right. You know, but we don't, um, you know, do uh, interventions and drag these people <laughs> off to... Um, psychiatrists to be analyzed because they're, you know, they're making a whole lot of money and they're running things, you know, so there's no problem in that sense. Now, if one part of the the formula for a so-called paranoid schizophrenic, and I'm going to keep using that term so-called because we're throwing some of these terms into doubt, but, Mm -hmm. uh, but if one part is the disintegration of the self, the other part is this need to explain it a kind of rationality rushes in to explain why mm-hmm. these voices are occurring, why my actions seem to be happening mm-hmm. uh, out of my control. And then people reach for whatever system, explanatory system, seems most prevalent or most handy or powerful. In the old days, long ago, it might have been ideas of demons and spirits. It might have been ideas about magic and witchcraft, voodoo dolls, other forms of invisible occult manipulation. In the modern era, it is science, as often as not. That's right. And I think that, you see, in, in that sense, I would say that um, people who suffer from so-called schizophrenia, or uh, we'd like to paraf- you know, phrase this um, you know, as carefully as we like. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> um, it seems to me that's not part of the condition. That's something that any of us would do. And that's something that we all do when we're presented with something we can't account for, is our, um, our, our minds, and often part of the mind that we're not really aware of and not very conscious of, um, leap to a conclusion that seems plausible. Um, there's a fantastic novel by um, Evelyn Waugh, the British novelist, who, uh, who had uh, some experiences like this, some um, delusional episodes, and he um, wrote a novel about them called The Ordeal of Gilbert Pinfold. And uh, he said when he was talking about it, uh, he was wonderfully frank about it, and he said, you know, people call this losing your reason, but it's not losing your reason at all. It's quite the opposite. My reason was just working overtime. But on this false set of premises, I was hearing voices everywhere kind of discussing me where they're clearly... So I started thinking, well, there must be loudspeakers in the room, and maybe this is to do with that... BBC interviewer who interviewed me last week, who I was a bit suspicious about, and then I've got this neighbour who's uh, interested in radionics and has this black box that he says can send thoughts at a distance. So maybe there's this, you know. So you know, he's he, it, that kind of elaboration. I think um, you know that's not something that only happens to um, you know people who are mentally unwell. That's something we all do, but we're not all put in the situation where we have to do it to a story that doesn't make sense. Well, there have been a number of experiments where people are put in situations where they're presented with actions of their own that they can't explain, that that seem inexplicable. Uh-huh. There were some experiments uh, done quite a long time ago with an illusion. You can do this very easily with mirrors. Uh, mm-hmm. That involves people seeing what they think is their own hand, but it's actually someone else's hand. That's right. Doing things that they are not uh, willing themselves. And because they think it's their own hand, they'll come up with explanations. And some of them come up with technological explanations, like some force, you know, is controlling my hand. Mm. Electromagnetism, some form of ray or something like that. Uh, This seems to be something we do. You know, the explanatory 
systems that are out there in our current period are used all the time naturally to yeah. to try I mean, to bring some coherence to the world. You know, we, yeah. that's, what, that's what we do all the time. Yeah, yeah. So the crazy part, when you talk about someone like James Tilly Matthews in his most delusional phase, the crazy part it strikes me, is, is certainly not that he had a wild idea, because a lot of people are walking around with wild and mistaken ideas. In fact, if scientific accuracy is your measure, then we were probably almost all wrong, and certainly everybody prior to um, you know uh, this century or the, the previous century was definitely wrong scientifically, and we'll probably all be proved wrong again. It can't be accuracy uh, you know, that's the measure of insanity. No, that's right. I, mean, I think that maybe the difference is, uh, James, between James Tilly Matthews and other people of his time was that he was trying to explain something that was um, inexplicable. Uh, he was trying to resolve a, you know, a mental contradiction that couldn't be resolved. He was trying to explain why his experience of life was so far removed from everybody else's consensus reality. Uh, and, you know, the tools that he had at his disposal were, you know, a wonderfully agile mind, extremely well-informed about, um, you know, cutting-edge technology. So he produces this thing that's almost like a sort of wonderfully, um, you know, conceived and elaborated fiction. But he's not doing it, he's not, you know, writing it as a fiction to entertain people. Um, he's doing it to try and make sense of um, his experience. I, I want to um, just inject a note of caution, another note of caution, for mm. people who, who may think that I'm proposing or you're proposing that there's no such thing as real mental illness, that there's nothing to you know, distinguish a person who's babbling incoherently and not taking care of him or herself uh, and uh, has wild, paranoid ideas from the rest of us. No, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that. I know you're not saying that. To suggest that... Um Schizophrenia is kind of only a diagnosis and a so-called condition is not to say that there's no such thing as um, mental illness, there's no such thing as delusional thinking and, uh, you know, self-destructive behavior. Of course there are. Uh, I think the problem with the term schizophrenia is it's not, you know, you can't just sort of use it as a term for a disease. It's not an equivalent for measles. You know, measles, we know what causes it and what produces it. Uh, you can do um, tests immediately that uh, show whether you've got it or not. You don't even need to do tests because there are physical symptoms. Um, schizophrenia, we have to remember, there's not one single test, no genetic test, no uh, sort of blood or other fluid test, no um, MRI or PET scan or CAT scan. There's absolutely nothing, you know, that can give you a firm diagnosis of this. So we're talking about something that doesn't really have, you know, the kind of clear physical basis you know, what doctors call an etiology that would allow us to talk about it as an illness. So I think it's that that we're being skeptical about rather than the idea, you know, that some people are kind of mentally ill and, um, uh, you know, uh, self-destructive and unable to cope, which is clearly clearly the case. You have written elsewhere, um, uh, when I say elsewhere, I mean uh, in places other than the book under discussion, A Vision mm -hmm. Visionary Madness, you have written elsewhere about something uh, you refer to as sane hallucinations. These are hallucinations that are not, you know, indicative of insanity or mental illness that people have experienced in a variety of temporary states, whether it's the result of a migraine or uh, a medication or something like that. Some of these hallucinations have a lot of things in common. That's right. And I mean, they're an extraordinary, 
extraordinarily varied number of physical causes that can make people hallucinate. I mean, as you said earlier, you know, there's all kinds of cognitive um, tests, you know, can make people think that their uh, hands are doing things that they're Right, not. right. Um, there's medications, I mean, things like Parkinson medications and stuff that make people, you know, see really quite discreet hallucinations. Of course, not just taking drugs, but not taking drugs. The withdrawal from, you know, drugs like alcohol, as we know, causes hallucinations. Uh, there are, you know, other conditions of partial blindness that make people see things that aren't there, which the mind then elaborates into extraordinarily um, convincing sort of full hallucinations. So this is something that uh, our mind does in all kinds of um, different situations. Um, one of the remarkable sort of light motifs in some hallucinations that occur for in a lot of cases is the apparition of uh, what are called little people, yes. <laughs> miniature human beings, <laughs> whether they're elves or fairies or trolls. I've been kind of fascinated by this for a while because, um, uh, you, know, you know, this is well known in a lot of different fields that aren't, aren't joined up. Um, somebody I knew was on uh, Parkinson's medication a few years ago, and he would be um, sitting there and he'd see all these armies of little people, like little gnomes, kind of marching around over his bed and up and down. And this turns out to be quite common. At the same time, you know, if you read uh, the literature around um, psychedelic drugs, you get a lot of people who have encounters with, um, you know, little people. And we think maybe of um, Alice in Wonderland and these changes of size and shape. And then, as you say, the fact that if you look at almost every culture, there are either elves or trolls or, you know, there's some kind of, some kind of little people. And these seem to be kind of culturally determined to a certain extent. If you're in um, a Scandinavian country where everybody believes in trolls or elves, <laughs> you're likely to experience these things in that way. Whereas, uh, you know, if you're in a different frame of mind um, or, uh, you know, approaching the experience from a different direction, uh, it'll manifest itself quite differently. So there's an extraordinary... We think of hallucinations as being this completely private mental event, but uh, I'm fascinated by the extent to which they seem to be culturally influenced and constructed. Well, again, this ties in with our discussion about influencing machines. There's a great deal of cultural input into these states. The idea that lunacy, madness, you know, mental illness should exist in its own world, cut off from everything that's happening in culture at large, seems to be wrong. <laughs> and in fact, the opposite seems to be the case. Um, if uh, you're having difficulty imposing your, you know, your will or your subjectivity on the world and making sense out of the world, um, you're extraordinarily vulnerable to all these things that are kind of... Uh, you know, just free-floating around you in the culture. I mean, people I know who've had schizophrenia, like sort of delusional conditions, um, you know, anything, you know, just the cover of a paperback book, you know, an advertisement on a bus going past, you know, all these things can suddenly seem, you know, incredibly full of meaning um, and incredibly um, powerful. So um, whatever causes these conditions, we don't know, but the way these conditions express themselves um, is enormously reflective of the culture around them. Um, you know, I was trying to figure out what to call you uh, in introducing you at the beginning of this show. You've written extensively on these kinds of subjects, including uh, mind-altering drugs. I have another book of yours called High Society, mm -hmm. Mind-Altering Drugs in History and Culture, beautifully illustrated, by the way. Uh, showing the use of psychoactive chemicals uh, throughout history from alcohol, tobacco, coffee, tea, uh, <laughs> and much more exotic things. Um, 
what do you call yourself? I'm thinking you might be um, a historian of the mind. That's uh, a great description. I haven't come up with that. Um, I guess I write. Um, well, I write about whatever interests me, and then I, I guess I have to kind of you know look back retrospectively and see what that amounts to. <laughs> um, a lot of it's about history because you know I'm not a trained historian. I use history as a way of um, approaching the present. A lot of it's around the history of science and medicine, and but particularly as you say. These dimensions of the mind, like uh, drugs and mental illness, and um, you know, that are, that are very susceptible to culture. I'm fascinated by the interplay between the individual and um, the wider culture, and the way that shifts through time. Um, after all this research you've done, and you are quite a prodigious researcher. Have you come to any tentative conclusions or, or realizations? I guess I've I've moved towards the idea that uh, you know. These um, these kind of private mental experiences are much much more culturally determined than we think. I mean, we've got an increasingly sophisticated um, explanation of them now in terms of uh, you know brain chemistry and neurotransmitters and so on. But I'm always uh, surprised to find out um, you know how in fact you know the culture and the world around us um, influences influences these. I mean, if you look at uh, mind-altering drugs, for example. Um, uh, you know, hallucinogenic mushrooms is one thing I've kind of looked at through history. And uh, what you notice is um, they were kind of around in history. And, um, you know, every now and again you find a written account of, you know, somebody who's eaten some hallucinogenic mushrooms. But it's always written up by a doctor and it's always discussed as a, as a poisoning. Uh, you know, because people eat these um, mushrooms, they feel the effects coming on and... Um, they, uh, you know, as their first thought, naturally enough, is I've eaten some poisonous mushrooms, I'm going to die. And they perceive what we, you know, the hallucinatory qualities as part of the delirium. But it's only kind of, you know, recently when people have started to get the idea that actually um, taking these mushrooms might be, you know, an extraordinary visionary experience. And people have started to realize that people in other cultures, like Mexico, for example, have been doing this forever and that, you know, sort of shamans use them for, you know, spiritual practices. Once that idea is in our minds, then it completely changes the nature of the experience. You know, and as we've been discussing today, the same is true with mental illness, which looked at through one lens is uh, a clinical condition, but uh, looked at through an another is, um, expresses itself very, very differently in different times and places. Mm. So I guess if there's a unifying theory, um, it's, uh, it's not so much a theory as a direction. It's kind of looking towards the culture and understanding um, that that has a far, far bigger influence on us and our minds than, you know, th th than most people imagine. Hmm. Well, Mike, it's been great talking to you today. Really fascinating. Great. Thanks very much. I've really enjoyed it, Robert. Mike J. His book, A Visionary Madness, The Case of James Tilly Matthews and the Influencing Machine, is coming out from North Atlantic Books in January of 2014. His other books include High Society, The Central Role of Mind-Altering Drugs, in history, science, and culture. And this has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly signing off for this week. I'll be back next week. We are online at 7thAvenueProject.com.